Welcome to day 106 of the story that changes everything. Our readings for today are 1 Kings chapters 19 through 21. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. Whatever emotional high Elijah may have experienced in God's victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel in chapter 18, it all comes crashing down in chapter 19. When Jezebel hears what happened to her prophets, she vows to have Elijah killed. Elijah took her threats to heart and ran away deep into the wilderness of Judah. Elijah's solitary journey has many connections to Israel's Exodus story. He finds himself in the wilderness. He laments to God in ironic ways. God has delivered him from death, and yet he still longs to die. God feeds him in the wilderness. He journeys there for 40 days, and he ends up on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the same place where Moses encountered God and received the law. There is a significant difference, however. Many of the signs that accompanied God's self-revelation to Moses are present, the wind, the fire, earthquakes, but the unique presence of God to Elijah is not in any of them. Rather, God's unique presence and self-revelation comes in overwhelming silence. God assures the lonely and isolated Elijah that he is not alone. God has reserved 7,000 who've not bowed their knee to Baal. God gives him some new assignments. Anoint a new king in Aram, Hazael. Anoint a new king in Ephraim, Jehu. And anoint a prophetic successor for himself, Elisha. It's not unusual, based on the pattern of First and Second Kings, that God would appoint a new king to take the throne from an unfaithful Ahab. But what's unique here is that God has chosen a king for a nation outside of Israel and Judah. Elijah is to anoint a king for Aram. God is indeed Lord of all the nations. And it is unique that Elijah not only blesses his own successor, but that he anoints him. Prophets are not usually anointed. In fact, this is the only reference to the anointing of a prophet in the Bible. Chapters 20 and 21 picture Ahab as a wishy-washy politician operating with very few convictions other than survival, and with little ability to lead with any moral authority. Ben-Hadad of Aram musters an impressive army of 32 kings or governors to extort, if not defeat, Ahab and Ephraim. With a word from the Lord and an assist from Ben-Hadad's drinking problem, Ahab is able to defeat the army of Aram and overcome the threats from Ben-Hadad. The Arameans come to believe that they lost because Yahweh is a mountain god. If they could just draw Ahab and the Israelites into fighting on the plain, the power of Yahweh would be of no help to the Israelites. But God's universal creational power is not confined to the mountains, and thus the armies of Aram are defeated again on the plains. Unfortunately for Ahab, instead of following through on the Lord's judgment against Ben-Hadad, Ahab, a little bit like Saul, lets him off the hook. And so Ahab's weakness leads to another prophetic denunciation of the king. In the next story, Ahab is interested in expanding his royal compound, and so he offers Naboth, from the tribe of Issachar, a price for his next-door vineyard. The only problem is that Naboth doesn't want to sell and give up on his ancestral claim. Ahab may be indecisive, but Jezebel is not. She takes matters into her own hand and enacts a scheme that has echoes of David's killing of Uriah. In the same way that David killed Uriah and took Bathsheba, Jezebel will kill Naboth and take his vineyard. 
The word of God comes to Elijah again, and he pronounces judgment upon Ahab and his entire house. Not only will he, the king, die, but God will end his rule and his lineage. What happened to the dynasties before him will now happen to his dynasty and the house of Omri. Ahab, always a chameleon of the moment, repents for what he's done, and that delays God's judgment. John Goldengate describes the end of the chapter this way. He writes, The story presupposes something fundamental about the way prophecy works. When God declares that something is about to happen, it doesn't mean it has to happen. Everything depends on the way people respond to what God says. In some sense, Elijah's words bring Ahab to his senses, and this gives God the excuse to be merciful, which is always God's preference. God can continue to be long-suffering. Ahab's repentance does not undo the attitudes and practices that Ahab and his predecessors have tolerated and encouraged in Ephraim. These will continue, and judgment will eventually come on Ahab's household. The implication is not that the son will be punished for the father's sin, irrespective of the son's stance. If the son repents, then the prophecy can be rescinded again. But the acts of parents tend to shape their children, and it's in this sense that the parents' sins are visited on their children. Interesting. As we read these chapters, I can't help but have a little bit of sympathy for Ahab. He has two very strong personalities in his life. On one side, his manipulative wife Jezebel, and on the other side, the uncompromising prophetic word of Elijah. Ahab's response or moral posture seems to depend on which one's in front of him, putting the pressure on him in the moment. Like many of us, he's more the product of peer pressure around him than of the convictions deep inside him. It's not exactly what the people of God need from their leader. Read these texts slowly and carefully looking for insights and truths you've never seen before. Journal your thoughts, prayers, and questions, and find the God-shaped compass to guide you through the ups and downs of life. Our readings for tomorrow finish the book of 1 Kings and launch us into 2 Kings. We're reading the last chapter of 1 Kings, chapter 22, and starting 2 Kings, chapters 1 and 2. And we're adding Psalm 45. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.